is our Jesus big enough? That's the question tonight. Is our Jesus big enough? Now, many religions around the world believe in Jesus. Okay? Now, some believe in Jesus as a prophet, don't they? Some actually believe in Jesus uh, almost in a sort of heavenly way, if not quite believing that he is divine. That's fine. But what about us? What about you in here tonight? How is it that, that we perceive Jesus Christ? What do we think about Jesus? Do we, when we think about Jesus Christ and our, our relationship with Jesus, is it really just as a friend? Is that how we think about Jesus? Just as a sort of guardian angel type figure? Is it that? Maybe. Is it a bit more than that? Is it that we think about Jesus just as a sort of messenger, a delivery man of our prayers? From us to God. Is that how we think of Jesus? How do we perceive him? Is our Jesus really big enough? Okay, well this evening what happens is that we move on in our uh, study in the letter to the Colossians. Now, now, Now what happens is we kind of move out of Paul's prayer report do you remember that? The sort of what we've looked at so far has been an account that he has given this church, this congregation, of what it is that he has been praying for them. Now we're moving, he's finished with that. So we move out of a prayer report and we are moving into a hymn of praise that Paul pens to Jesus Christ. Now, let me not for a second undersell what we are looking at tonight. F.F. Bruce, big famous biblical commentator, he says that what we're going to do tonight, what we are looking at tonight, is one of the greatest Christological passages in the whole of the New Testament. And do you know what? The guy is no wrong. Okay? What we are looking at tonight is marvelous stuff. This, This passage of scripture is awesome. And as close as we can, what we're going to do, the structure of the sermon tonight is going to follow, as close as we can, Paul's, the flow of Paul's thought. Now, what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, practically speaking, what it means is we're going to try and split this sermon into two. Okay? Now, we're going to look, first of all, at Christ as supreme over creation. Then we move into this next section, which is Christ as supreme over what's called reconciliation. And we'll look at what that, that means. Now, that's, that's the way that Paul is arranging this hymn of praise to Christ. So that's the way that we're going to look at it this evening. Okay, now, if you haven't already done so, please have your Bible open. Please look at Colossians 1 from verse 15. Let's consider that, that first heading, that Christ is supreme over creation. Now, what we're going to do in this first heading is just try and answer three very simple questions about the relationship that Jesus has with creation. That's the plan, okay? Three very, very basic questions about Jesus and creation. Now, the first one couldn't be any more simple, and it is, who is this creator? That's the first thing that we've got to get our heads around. Christ is supreme over creation. Who is this creator? Okay.
over London, over London the last couple of months. I hope you've noticed this. But there are a lot of portable bookstalls popping up all over the shop. See them? So there's people handing out books, a lot in the city of London. And they're handing, a book, handing out a book that is called, What Does the Bible Really Teach? Have you seen it? And these portable bookstalls, the people that are handing these things out are Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, if you get into a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses about Jesus Christ, the first thing that they're going to do is to take you here. Now, they're going to take you to the opening phrase that you've got in front of you tonight, to where it says, look at verse 15. It says, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now, a Jehovah's Witness is going to say to you, okay, look, Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That means, according to a Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus is the first thing created, the firstborn, the first out of all created things, right? So you can imagine it, Jehovah's Witness knocking at the door and he says that to you. What do we do with that? Now, what are you going to do with that? Firstborn over creation, respond to that. Well, hopefully, you're going to respond by saying, no chance. You've got that wrong. In fact, what I hope you might do is say, well, that is exegetical lunacy. Because look at this. Follow me. Look, see what Paul says in the very next verse. Have a look at it. He says, you know, Christ is the firstborn over all creation. For by him, look at it, all things were created. All things were created. So do you see the sort of inconsistency in the Jehovah's Witness argument? How could Jesus be a created thing? And at the same time, Paul says that all things were created by him. Do you see it's inconsistent? Do you see that Jesus would have had to, it had to create himself? Of course it doesn't mean that. But if it doesn't mean that, what does it mean? What does this Jesus as firstborn for creation actually mean? Tell you what, think back to what we studied previously. Think back to Genesis. Think back to Abraham. In Genesis, all the way through in Genesis, think about it. The firstborn son was the special child, wasn't he? That's the same in Genesis. That's the way all the way through Scripture. The, the idea of firstborn was, was a son that, that had status, didn't he? A firstborn son. He was the son that had honor. He, had the, he was the one that had the inheritance coming to him. He had the firstborn son. He was the one that had a future. And you see, that is exactly what Paul is saying here about Jesus Christ. He's not saying that, that Jesus was the first created thing. He's saying here that Jesus Christ is the one, the firstborn, the one with status over creation, the one that has the inheritance of creation coming to him. Do you see? The one who is deserving of praise, the firstborn, the one deserving of praise because of his status and his unique position. He is the firstborn over creation. Do you see it? But we're not off the hook. Because uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses are still at our door. 
And they're saying, okay, we get it. We get the firstborn stuff. But they say to us, look at what Paul says before that. Look at it. The beginning of verse 15. You know, they say, Paul says that Jesus is the image of an invisible God. And you know what a Jehovah's Witness is going to say to you about that? That an image is not the same as being a genuine article. You see it? And Jehovah's Witness, and one said to me about two weeks ago, he said that an image is a representation. It's not the genuine article. So how do we respond to that? Image of the invisible God, representation. Is that right? Well, again, we have to stand and we have to say, no, that is not right at all. You see, we have to be very, very careful when it comes to biblical language, don't we? And, and yeah, it is true that in English, the word image carries a sort of connotation of being a representation or a copy of something, doesn't it? An image is a copy of it. You know, my, my son will draw a picture of me, an image of me. It will look nothing like me, or I hope I don't look anything like that. It's a representation. So in English, that's the connotation. But in the Greek, in the original language, the word image has a different connotation. And it has the connotation of a revelation of something. Do you see what Paul's saying? Paul is saying that this Jesus, Scripture, this Jesus is a revelation of his Father. This Jesus is where the invisible God becomes visible. This is where the creator, God, bursts into his creation. Do you see it? I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. This is not an expression. This is not Paul sort of diminishing Jesus' status, diminishing his eternity. This is Paul worshipping Jesus, magnifying him as Lord. So who's this creator? The second thing that we've got to deal with here is what is it that Jesus has created? Okay, we see who he is. Firstborn, image of the invisible, but firstborn created. What's he created? Well, if we were feeling super lazy this evening, we could answer that question pretty easily. What has Jesus created? We could just read verse 16 that says, he has created all things. If we're feeling lazy tonight, that's, it. that's all we need to do. Just put a full stop there, and that's it, okay? Let's not, because I'll tell you why not. Paul is making a point here. A very important point. Um, I'm sure you're all familiar with, I'm sure the students are definitely familiar with uh, that sort of Phil and Kirsty show, uh, Location, Location, Location. You know, the one that's on daytime TV. Students are supposed to like day, daytime TV. I don't know if that's a, a true representation or not. But uh, So it's location, location, location. Well, you see, for, for Christians to understand Scripture, the repetition is very different, isn't it? It's not location, location, location. It is context, 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 isn't it? Because I bet you see the, the, the temptation here. We've got this hymn of praise. I mean, what did, what, F.F. Bruce, you know, one of the greatest Christological passages, right? 
The temptation is to take this grand portion of Scripture out of where it sits and to study it in isolation, isn't it? But here's the thing. If we do that, we don't understand these words as we should. We have to pay attention to the context into which they were written. Now, what is that context? Do you remember what we've looked at? What have we got here? Paul's writing to a church that is struggling with false teachers. Do you remember that? That that this is written to a church that is being told by these false teachers that you need Christ, but you need something else as well. You need Christ, they're being told, but you need other spiritual experiences on top of that. That's what's going on in Colossians. Now, when you think about that as the context, do you see what Paul's doing here? He's writing to these people, he's writing to this church, and he's saying, what nonsense. You only need Jesus. You only need this creator, this God. You don't need any other spiritual experiences. Why? What does he say? Because this Jesus has created all things. Every other spiritual experience is beneath him. Do you see that? He stands as the creator. He has created everything, everything else. He said, forget about what these false teachers are saying. Jesus is the creator God. And here's my thought. I wonder, do we see how that should affect our own spiritual lives? See, what it does, and we remember what's going on here, is it reminds us that it is totally fruitless for us to look elsewhere for any sort of spiritual satisfaction. And I mean that to Christians and to non-Christians. You know, Jesus is creator. Everything else is beneath him. He's, he, he brought everything else into to being. It reminds us that, that, that he is the remedy. Only he's the remedy for your spiritual drought. You know, you're struggling spiritually with dryness. He's, the, he's brought everything into being. He stands superior over everything. He's the remedy for that. Is there spiritual error in your life? He's the remedy for that as well. So we see who this creator is. We see what he's created. And the sort of third question here is basically for you and me, what impact should this have? Jesus as this supreme God over creation. Okay. Um, I've studied these verses a lot. I've read these verses a lot. Um, and every time I read them, I feel rebuked by these verses. I read them and I go back to them quite a bit and I feel chastised by God. And I I think you can see why. Like because of our sin, what we tend to do is try, maybe not try, but what we do is we diminish God. We diminish, dilute Jesus, don't we? And the way that we think about Christ and in our affections as well, we sort of lessen Jesus, don't we? And then you come back to this and you read, <laughs> you read about Christ and you realize again what a God we have. 
And we read this and again we're chastised and we see anew the sort of preeminence of, of Jesus, right? But I'm also chastised and rebuked in another way. Because I read this and I am personally convicted about the default view that I've got of my own life. I wonder if you see what I mean. Like, what we can do as Christians is, is fall into thinking that Jesus has created the world for us. You know, as the people of God, we sort of think, okay, Jesus has, has created heaven. And Jesus has created earth. And he's done this out of his grace and out of his goodness. And he's done it for the people of God. He's done it for us. And there's an element of truth in that. Of course there's an element of truth in that. But what I want you to see is that that is a totally insufficient understanding of what God has done. Because that is not it at all. And I'll tell you how we see that. There is one word here that should blow our lives apart. And it should completely change the default default view that we have of the way that we live, okay? And it's just three letters. Let me read it to you. Look what Paul says in 16. Look how he ends verse 16. The world was created by Jesus. What does he go on to say? The world was created for him. Now, let that sink in. The world created for Jesus. That this Christ that we are talking about tonight is so worthy of praise, that he is so exalted, think about it, that the universe and the heavens and the earth and all plant life and all animal life and all human life, every single thing that has been created has been created. Why? For this Jesus. Now, do you see what that means for you and how you live this week? See, it means that not just the spiritual stuff in your life is for Jesus. See, not just this tonight and and maybe praying and maybe reading the Bible and coming to church. Not just that is for Jesus. It means Jesus has created all things for himself. It means that everything else is to be about Jesus too. Do you see how earth-shattering that is? It means your family exists. Why? So that through them, you can glorify Jesus Christ. All things created for him. It means tomorrow, see at work, your daily work exists for Jesus. So that you can honor Jesus at work. It means our social time. The, the very reason that we have social time, that, that God in eternity and infinity has, has created and given us social time, the very reason that exists is so that we can use it for the, the glory of God. All things created. Do you see how massive this is? It should lead us really tonight just to stop and, and, and pause and to realize how exalted Christ is. All things created for him. And it should lead us surely to repent. This is not how we view our lives. 
And it should lead us to resolve to live for him in all things. This Lord, for whom all things, all things have been created. So, Jesus is supreme over creation. But I said there's a sort of second idea here that Paul has. And it's that Jesus as supreme over reconciliation. Now, look, uh, that first heading, there was three sort of questions that we looked at with Jesus' relationship with creation. We are not going to go down that route for the second heading. The second heading is much more simple. All we're going to do is have... We're just going to look at the two emphases that Paul has here about Jesus and the restoration or reconciliation of all things. Now, the, the first thing is to look at Jesus' reign over the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus' reign over the, over the church. Okay. Now, a common kids' talk that we might hear in a church is when a minister uh, gets to the front and he will use the comparison uh, that Scripture has of the church and uh, the many members of a human body. Right? So you can you can imagine. It. Let's say we've got communion and we've invited uh, some minister from the free church to come to us and he gets to the front, he's going to do the kids' talk. All the kids, they come down to the front and he shows them a picture of an ear. What does an ear do? And then he'll show them a picture of toes. It's like, what do toes do? And he shows them a picture of an arm and, and, and so forth. And he makes the point that the church is like the body, you know, many different parts working together. With different functions, they're all working together. Now, we've heard that sort of thing before. You've read that in scripture before. But what we've got to see is that when Paul here speaks of Jesus as the head of the church, his body, that's not what he's talking about. The emphasis here is not upon the interdependence of the body. When when Paul here talks about Jesus as the head and the church as his body, Paul is emphasizing the sovereignty of Jesus as the head over his church. Now, you see how that works, do you? You know, Paul's saying that, like, just as a head would do, Jesus provides the vision for the church. That just as a head would do, Jesus provides the, the, the words, okay, that, that Jesus stands above and superior to sovereignly reigning over the rest of the body. Look, Just look at verse 18, if you do have your Bibles open, see what he's talking about. Look at verse 18, it's our word again, our Jehovah's Witness word. He says, Jesus Jesus is the, what is it, firstborn from among the dead. Do you see it? That just as Jesus has the sovereign state of the firstborn over creation... So Jesus has the sovereign status of the firstborn over the resurrection, over his church. So what we're seeing is that Jesus is head of the church. And I want us to think about that, because that's a problem here in this congregation, as it is a problem in 
every congregation. You've heard the name Mark Driscoll? So Mark Driscoll was um, a pastor of a mega church, like a multi-site. I don't know how many people went to Mars Hill in Seattle, but we're talking thousands, tens of thousands of people. I said Mark Driscoll was the pastor of that church because Mark Driscoll, in the last few weeks, has had to step down, stand down from his position of pastor and minister. Why? Well, it was alleged that this guy, Mark Driscoll, was being almost sort of dictatorial in the way that he was running the church. So alleged, I underline, that he was being sort of authoritarian. You know, never given an inch, never taken on anyone's uh, view that, that he was the boss of this church. And nobody was given a say in anything. Now, look, we could sit tonight and think about that and we could maybe criticize Mark Driscoll. We could judge Mark Driscoll for that. But instead, could we not also say that the same is the case in here and the same is the case in our hearts? Isn't it? Do we not try in the life of the church to impose our ideas? Do we not, in the life of this congregation or other congregations, do we not try and change things? Do we not try and mold things in the way that we desperately want to see things done? Now, we can, we can do that in a, a lot of different ways. We can huff. There's a lot of huffing in churches. I mean, we can be too assertive as well, can't we? We can quietly try and instigate a sort of mutiny. But when we read these verses of the Lord Jesus Christ, Should that, in our hearts, should that not absolutely repulse us? Because you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying that London City Presbyterian Church, Paul is saying that is God's church. What Paul is saying here in these verses is that Andy Pearson is not, in any way, the head of the church. He is saying that you are not the head of the church. He is saying that this Lord, this Jesus Christ, that he is the head of the body, the church. Now, that is actually quite a difficult thing for us to wrestle with and to deal with sometimes, isn't it? Because it means that what we are having to do in practice is take our pride and put it to the side. It means that in a lot of issues, we're going to think, oh, I wish he would do this. And I wish she would do that. And I wish that that, that they wouldn't do that. Or things would like that. And we're going to have to say, but do you know what? It might not be Christ's will. It might not be what Christ wants in this church. And so I let it go. Friends, hear this. There needs to be here, there needs to be a new humility amongst the new humanity of Jesus. Why? Because it is Christ that is the head of the body, the church. And then the last thing to consider here, appropriately on Remembrance Sunday, is Jesus' reign over peace. Jesus' reign over peace. 
Okay, here's the deal. Um, there is an implied disaster in these verses. Okay, do you see what I mean? There is an implied disaster. Um, Paul has spoken about creation, and then he is, goes on to speak about the repair of creation. So do you see what I mean? There's the implication, if creation needs repaired, there's the implication that something's happened to creation. There's the implication that somewhere along the, the line, the created order, all things, something has happened to it that's caused a, a rupture, it's caused a disaster to the heavens, to the, to the earth, to everything. Now, as Christians, you know what that disaster is, don't you? The, the, the rupture of creation. You know that in Genesis 3, Adam has fallen and that that has brought sin, not just to us, humanity, but in Genesis 3, Adam's fall has brought sin to creation and to the created order, that now all things are in bondage to sin. All things are scarred. Creation is scarred. Now, here, Paul tells us how this disaster is repaired. Now, what he says is that God has, he's healed this rupture in creation. He has made peace with it. That's the language he uses. And then in verse 20, he tells us how it's done. It is peace with creation. There's a reconciliation of all things. And it is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, I was reading that this week, and I passed over it very, very quickly. And then you begin to think, no, hang on a second. Think about what Paul is saying. That this exalted Christ, not that the little Christ that, that through our sin we try and diminish, but this exalted Christ, the creator of all things, the one who sustains all things, the one that was, uh, was there in the beginning, this Christ to repair creation, to provide reconciliation, that Christ has voluntarily humiliated himself by coming to earth and dying. That Christ. But as we close, do you know what? All I, all I want to do is just highlight a couple of encouragements for you for this week. As you go out into the world, as you go out to this ungodly city of London, okay? Just, a, just an encouragement. Think about these, okay? We're talking about reconciliation of the created order. Think about the fact that Paul tells us that that reconciliation has already happened. Look in verse 19. Look, the tense is amazing. It's God was, past tense, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Now, just meditate upon it and think about what it means. God was pleased that this reconciliation has already happened. That God has, in some senses, already made peace with creation. That through the cross, what God has done is put into motion this unstoppable sort of chain of events that is inevitably going to result in all things being reconciled to Christ. That this has already happened. Now, do you see the encouragement? Do you see what it means for you? It's already happened. 
Reconciliation's already happened. And that means there is nothing that you can do to add to it. It's done. Do you see that? 2,000 years ago, on the cross of Calvary, Jesus has made peace with God. That the reconciliation has already happened. That means that you can't do anything about it. You, you can't augment it. You can't improve on it. It's done. So as a Christian, your salvation and your reconciliation with God, it's happened. It's done. And then the last encouragement, the last thing tonight with which we end, it says here that all things are reconciled. All things are reconciled. And so because of that, we're told that this is not, this is not sort of hoity-toity sort of up-in-the-air theology that we're dealing with here. This means that it affects you, and it affects me, and it affects everyone and everything. All things reconciled to God. Now, I'm guessing you're thinking, is Paul teaching universalism there? All things are reconciled to God. Does that mean that all people are saved? Does that mean that all people will be saved? Of course it doesn't mean that. But it does mean one day coming when every knee is going to bow before Jesus Christ. All things reconciled. And that can either be through humble obedience and willingness to worship. Or it can be by force but all things will be reconciled and are reconciled to God. And, and I think that's something, isn't it? Because hear this, that gives us an idea of what is coming our way. It means that, that one day, one day ahead of us, we are actually going to see the realization of the reconciliation of all things to God. We're going to see that. Like there is a day ahead where we are going to see, as Christians, a restored earth. And a restored heavens, we'll, we'll see it with our eyes, we will see a restored city of God. There is a day ahead where, where this new humanity that has been created and ruled by Christ, that humanity is going to rise to him. And it is going to abide with him. And it is going to live for him forevermore. There, there is a day ahead, now think about this, that, that, that this curse that is upon creation just now is going to be lifted. There ain't going to be any more illness or any more pain or any more grief, any more worry. That's going to go and the, the people of God we're going to go to Him and we are going to be with Him forever evermore. This God this Christ, this preeminent Lord, isn't it something? Isn't it marvelous that this is ahead of us in Jesus Christ? See, when we see this Jesus of Colossians chapter 1, we have to say, we have to ask ourselves, in repentance, is our Jesus big enough? I don't think he is. Because this Jesus of Scripture 
is one who is exalted. And he is one who is supreme over all things. He is one who is sufficient for our salvation. Suggest we bow our heads tonight. And we bow our hearts. And we do so in humble praise and humble adoration and thanksgiving. This Christ, he is our Lord, he is our God, and he is our Savior. Let's pray.